Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. So I've had to sort of navigate that a lot with people. And so the way I sort of put it is we're like the researchers and we're gathering the evidence so that they can uh, negotiate these issues that we've been putting up with for a long time and these injustices with the government and we've got enough evidence to back it up to say, hey, we already know, but what you're doing is not working and this is what our people want. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. As the country moves closer towards a referendum on a voice to parliament, the campaigns for yes and no are pulling out all the stops. Joining me to discuss the big issues of the week are Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen, and Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute at UTS, Professor Lyndon Coombs. Now, Lorena, you've been covering the referendum up close. What are your observations of where we are at the moment? Well, there's, I think there's so much happening at the moment. The Yes campaign has really ramped up its activity. Um, so it's every day we're seeing notifications of, you know, handing out flyers at train stations and public forums and community barbecues and and that sort of that sort of foot traffic that they had been promising for quite a while is now well underway. So it's extremely busy on that front. We're also seeing a lot of an escalation in the kind of the negative rhetoric around the the vote as well. So there's a lot of, I mean, just this week, there's been uh, Warren Mundina said that he sacked a couple of people from the no camp because of their anti-Semitic and their racist um, uh, statements. He hasn't elaborated any further on that. Um, And there's been a lot of antagonism between both camps. Uh, That's all heating up as well. And as we know, uh, there's been a lot of racism and hate directed at everyday mob. Um, We're all copying it. We're all getting lots of hate mail and seeing lots of really racist memes. So things are getting very intense for the Yes campaign, but also very intense for just average Aboriginal people who may not yet be really turning their full attention to this, but are kind of noticing an uptick in racist behaviour and racist attacks. Lyndon, what's your evaluation of how both the Yes and No cases are going? Yeah, it's been interesting uh, just looking at the polling that uh, the yes vote has fallen away a little bit. Um, So I I do expect that there probably will be a bit more ebb and flow in the polling around that, but the the yes vote seems to be sort of close to the mark. And as Lorena was saying that, yeah, there's people at my train station uh, most mornings with... um, Yes, material at local events I go to. So that visibility is increasing. The no camp, um, I think, is also sort of flailing a little bit and interesting. I hadn't seen um, that um, statement from Warren Mundine around um, rejecting uh, races out of the no camp. Um, If it was only a couple, he's got a lot more to go. Um, the the no camp has, you know, I think shown itself on various occasions that, you know, you scratch a little bit on their arguments and there's the racism if it's not already on show up front. So I think as it intensifies, those failings um, 
some of which on the yes side for different reasons have, have been shown, but on the no side um, there are people there that um, uh, are motivated by racism and hate and you, that's not sustainable once you start applying some scrutiny. Um, so I, um, I really don't know which way it's going to go, but um, we're in for a ride and, um, yeah, for a lot of blackfellas it won't be a good one. Lorena, Lyndon mentioned the declining uh, poll numbers for the yes vote. You've been travelling around the country, including up to Gama. <coughs> what are the views from First Nations community members that you've been speaking to? What have you been hearing in your travels? Well, you know, Gama was overwhelmingly yes. You know, pe- there were T-shirts, posters everywhere that, that people had written yes in the in the red dirt on the troopies. So it was a very it was a very positive. Uh, environment. Um, Peter Dutton called it a yes camp love-in, I think, uh, and that it, it was. But also I think people were really articulate about what it could do for them. So there was no doubt in, in, in you know, your minds up there that this is what they wanted. And they, they were very clear about what they would get out of it and what the benefits would be for them. They've, you know, when the Prime Minister went there, he met with the Dillard Council, which is the, which are the, who are the leaders of 13, you know, senior clan leaders, men and women from the region. They are kind of a regional voice for you all up there. Um, and so they were saying, well, this is how we want to do business with with the mainstream. So very positive. And, and there are other, you know, other communities where they're all on board, but there are communities where there are genuine uh, concerns that this is just is is not enough, uh, that it doesn't go far enough, that it's just an advisory body. So those concerns remain. I do think, though, that the Yes campaign is starting to filter into, like I'm starting to see a greater understanding of what the voice might be and uh, what the referendum's about. So as as they as the, the campaigners travel around the country, there is, you know, they are raising a greater awareness. But of course, there's a there's you know, a group of, you know, you know, Aboriginal people are concerned that this we're, going, we're being put through this process for not a huge outcome. So there are still people who are concerned that this doesn't go far enough and they, they want other things other than a voice or not just a voice. So while the Yes campaign is really um, becoming more active and more visible, I think there's still that sort of, that group of people who will probably not be convinced that this is a good idea. I'm talking about Indigenous people. I'm not talking about mainstream Australia. Sure. Lyndon, what do you think is needed to turn the fortunes of the Yes campaign around? I think it's turning from from my perspective for the reasons uh, Lorena has mentioned. I think where they probably need to sharpen focus is around the, the pragmatism of this and just doing a better job of explaining to everyone, uh, but particularly to Indigenous people of what what this really looks like and how it will work and how it will benefit um, Indigenous people across the country. Um, in saying that and looking at previous referenda, um, we do know that the Yes campaign is the harder um, campaign uh, that um, historically, we are conservative as a nation in terms of these changes. So I, I am reluctant to 
um, criticise too much um, the Yes campaign at this point, particularly given um, that they are ramping up and it is the more difficult um, argument to make. You've seen, uh, you know, a really scattered, ill-disciplined um, campaign from the no side. Um, as you mentioned, <laughs> you know, people um, openly expressing their racism on that side and, you know, that that no campaign, um, you know, is just sort of throwing things at the wall to see what will stick, you know, just pulling a thread um, all to just create a bit of doubt for um, the average voter and, and that's all they have to do. They, they don't need to be as disciplined as the S campaign. Um, they don't need to be as strategic. They don't need to be as thoughtful. Um, they can just throw things out there um, and that's all they've been doing and I think that's all they're capable of. Lorena, what is the impact from your perspective if the answer to the referendum is no? <coughs> I, I, I try and give this thought and then it just upsets me so much I, I put it away because I think um, it's not just a maintenance of the status quo. Um, it, it will set us back as a nation to God knows where because already the campaign has become ugly. The racist memes online are just next level. Um, the, the misinformation, the disinformation and the outright uh, lies online have been alarming. I mean, we've now, we've just had a, a, um, a story about um, one no campaigner, not the official no campaign, but a no campaigner who's using AI-generated brown people in his ads explaining why you should vote no. So we're reaching these new levels of kind of um, lows in their political discourse, I think. So I'm worried personally that the, that a no vote will embolden even more of that, that people will feel like they have been given a licence to say that and more. Um, and we've had the Prime Minister say this week that he won't legislate a voice if the vote is no. He will respect the will of the Australian people um, and, and, and just put it aside. So he's really in this all or nothing and so consequently so are all of us. Um, so it is a big gamble and... And the yes campaigners are putting a lot of faith in the 97% or so of Australians, non-Indigenous Australians, to put to get this over the line. But the most uh, acute impact of a no vote will be on us and some of the most vulnerable people in our society. So it's a very worrying thought that this may not get up. Your thoughts on that, Lyndon? Um. I'm trying not to go there, just to think about the work that we do on a on a day to day basis, and the voice hasn't been a priority for us, and it hasn't been a priority for a lot of blackfellas, but it has been sort of put in front of us uh, to talk about. But you know, I had a meeting yesterday about treaty in New South Wales treaty processes are happening all over the country. Um, Indigenous people are excelling all over the place uh, and I think there's a bit of work um, for us that I've been thinking about sort of the day after the referendum, whether it is a yes or no. Um, you know, sort of said to to our staff and to other people I meet that we'll, we'll show up to work the, the next weekend, uh, the, the week after the, the referendum, that we will get back to doing those good things, that we will start 
continue working towards a treaty in New South Wales. Other black fellows will work towards treaty in their um, respective states and territories. Um, so in saying that, I don't want to sound uh, too Pollyanna-ish. Um, a no vote will um, sort of be a setback, no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, but we've endured many setbacks <laughs> as peoples and um, they've often made us stronger. Um, you know, it's not like we're going anywhere. Um, we'll, we'll take the hit and, like I say, we'll, we'll continue to show up the next day. Our, our communities will show up the next day and, and we'll keep going. Well, it might not come to that, and I feel bad I asked you both that question now. Um, on to another topic. There have been numerous scandals over the past few weeks involving the relationship between the big four consulting firms and the public service. From conflicts of interest to questions about tendering processes and fees, a spotlight has been shone on their practices and their relationship with government. Lyndon, what has led to this situation? Yes, I should declare that... Um uh, I was a former employee of one of the big four. Um, and while I certainly didn't see anything like that happen, I did understand that there was an environment in which it could happen, um, even an environment in which it may be encouraged to happen. Um, you know, there, there is a culture, these are really fast-paced, aggressive, competitive smart people, um, you know, you're under a lot of scrutiny. Everyone knows how many hours you work, how many hours you're getting paid, how much money you're bringing in. And everyone's, um, you know, shooting for the stars to make partner and make lots of money. So it's an environment that um, besides, you know, th there's lots of, you know, workplace benefits and um, social causes that are, are committed to. But at the end of the day, um, as an employee, <laughs> you always knew that there was one thing that mattered the most and that was the bottom line. And in that environment, people are pushed and put under pressure. Um, I can't say that I've met, you know, too many bad people in that environment. They were good people wanting to do good work, highly motivated um, and lots of good work was done. And I, I think that was one of the other takeaways for me was um, the bad behaviour here happened at the highest level, happened at partner level, the double dealing. You know, I, I say to people, I can, I can hear the conversation that was going on when that double dealing was happening. They, they would have thought, um, as they often do, that they're the smartest men in the room because it's predominantly men, that they're the smartest guys in the room and... Um, you know, they're playing both sides. Um, and what caused me the most um, anger about that was, um, you know, they'll flitter away. A lot of them will get packages. A lot of them are already wealthy from the work they've done. Um, and their consequences will be, um, I suspect, minimal. I think a couple will get um, a spanking. Um, but ultimately it affects the, the people who are there for the right reasons, doing the right work, doing the right thing, um, doing most of the work, um, who are going to, you know, they're going to lose staff, they're going to have to, you know, they've sold part of the business, there's so much uncertainty and it's the people at the lower levels that get hurt. Um, yeah, it's just a, a horrible thing 
but um, as, as a previous employee, completely unsurprising. Lorena, what are your observations? I'm particularly interested in what you think it's revealed about the public service and uh, whether you sort of agree with Lyndon's assumption that there'll probably be few consequences. Well, it's not, in, it's not in any government's interest to make sure there are consequences, right? So all sides of politics have been implicated in this scandal, ongoing scandal with the, the big four. So, you know, no no political party is really going to want to punish or dig too deeply into what really went on because it, no one no one comes out of this looking good. Um, you're right, there is an implication for the public service and it feels to me like the, these, the big four were, in, were enabled to become so powerful and to, to take such liberties with public money because successive governments wanted to gut the public service uh, and they would would have preferred to pay for advice they wanted to hear rather than, you know, the so-called frank and fearless advice that the public service would have given them. I mean, that's not to say that the, the public service is, you know, above reproach either and that they're not guilty of similar things. But but we've seen over the last two decades or so this kind of shift towards the privatisation of of work that was normally done in the public and, that, and, was a, and certain levels of scrutiny were applied. So one of the most concerning things for me is that just as an as a, a everyday observer was the lack of systemic oversight of what these companies were, were doing, um, that they're not accountable, that they were not, um, they were not transparent about things that the government didn't expect them to be either. So, I mean, I was quite shocked at the lack of um, accountability that such, you know, about such big sums of public money. Um, and you know, as as an Aboriginal person, I mean, we get cop, we cop it the, the idea that there's this Aboriginal industry wasting taxpayer dollars left, right, and centre just is particularly galling to see the way that these powerful companies have kind of abused the trust of of the taxpayers and and our governments, um, and to get to get personally wealthy. I have to say that crossed my mind too. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berend and my guests are Lorena Allam and Lyndon Coombs. Well, it's another week and it's another Donald Trump indictment, this time for his alleged efforts to interfere in the 2020 election in the state of Georgia. Um, it doesn't seem to be hurting his chances among Republicans. Lorena, what do you make of the situation? I can't figure this out for the life of me, Larissa. I just... I must I must be really politically naive, but I cannot work out. I mean, other than the, the fact that they are already so deep in the in the conspiracy thinking that the election was stolen and that the whole QAnon craziness, like I, 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 that's to me the only reason why they would stick with him. But they're convinced that the the American system is out to get him, and. Uh, and, and it's that that kind of draws people to him because, I mean, as you say, he's been indicted in Georgia this week. He's also facing a number of other criminal and civil charges. You know, astonishing that he could he could emerge from this still as a potential presidential candidate. It just boggles the mind. Uh, on that, Lyndon, what are your mm. views of the likelihood of another Trump presidency and what are the implications for the rest of the world if that does happen? Horrifying, isn't it? Um no, I've found all of this endlessly fascinating ever since he sort of made his way down that elevator. Um, uh, I guess what occurred to me um, going through all of this, I remember 
growing up and having a, a bit of a resentment towards the US or all the movies I watched, um, TV shows, there was always this American supremacy. Um, they were the greatest country in the world. They went to space. They had the greatest military. <laughs> they had the, the greatest national parks. They had the greatest system of government. And I, I remember... Um, you know, them beating their chest about their democracy, about their institutions like the FBI, Department of Justice, the CIA, they're immensely proud of all of this and they, even though they didn't travel to other countries, believed that they were the best country in the world. And um, the the most fascinating thing about Trump is that he came along and just defecated over all of those institutions, over all of these um, protocols that um, he really exposed that um, that democracy in the, you know what they say is the world's greatest democracy is indeed fragile. If you have someone who comes along who just doesn't accept results, um, who's willing to weaponize agencies, who's willing to put his family in the White House, who's willing to allow them to benefit from uh, foreign countries. Um, who's willing to steal um, intelligence documents. I, you know, when I go back to my childhood, I, I would think that will never happen to this, um, you know, self-expressed greatest country um, in the world. But he's done it and he's been celebrated for it by a large portion of the country. Um, I don't think he'll win in saying that. I think he... There is a rump of Trump voters that will, they're rusted on, they're not going anywhere. Um, they're energised for him and the rallies look great and everything else. But I, I think there must be a chunk of Republicans who um, remember those days when they celebrated these institutions and the democracy and, you know, may not vote for Joe Biden but may not vote at all. Um, and he's lost the popular vote twice. So I, from that point of view, I don't think he gets in. But if he does, um, we're going to have a lot to talk about. Well, we'll reconvene when that happens. <laughs> well, if there's one thing that's been joyful and united the country, it's been the performance of the Matildas at the World Cup. It's certainly changed the conversation and one might say the playing field around women's sport. In light of their glory, I wanted to ask you both what your greatest sporting achievement was. And I'll start with you, Lorena. Oh, you got me on the hop. I hadn't thought about this. Um, I was a very sporty kid. I loved all sports. And, in fact, watching the Matildas the other night, I kind of felt sad for my younger self. You know, I thought, oh, I wish that I'd had this kind of exposure to, to women playing sport when I was a kid because it would have been life-changing. You know, I, I remember I played tennis, I played cricket, I played football on the front yard. Most of my greatest achievement is scoring goals against my, my dad and my brother and all the boys in the neighbourhood. <laughs> so um, I, I just look at the Matildas and I think there's this whole generation of girls who will be inspired to play football and to 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 play sport and be confident um, in a way that our generation didn't have those opportunities. Um, I used to have to get myself to my sport. You know, I didn't – it wasn't really a thing that girls I – mean, it, it wasn't a, a – it wasn't a family event when, when I, you know, I played all those sports. So netball, basketball, I was a runner, loved it all, did it all. But there wasn't really, it wasn't really encouraged for girls to, to do that in, in our day. <laughs> so I think my greatest sporting achievement was getting 
scoring goals against all the boys on the front lawn playing soccer. Who said, who said girls can't play sport? Yes, no, it was very much like that for me too. There was no encouragement uh, as uh, for women's sport as a spectator. So um, hopefully this will take the pressure off Lyndon. But my greatest sporting achievement was winning... Actually, I think I only came second or I won the block balancing race on Norfolk Island when I was about seven <laughs> and it's been downhill from there since I was not encouraged. But you're quite right, Lorena. You look at this next generation coming through and it's going to be a different story. Um, so, Lyndon. Uh, yeah, I, I love sport. I would play every day, play everything. Um, my forte was athletics and rugby and rugby league. And in my last ever athletics race, I ran 11 flat for the 100. And it's haunted me that I was never able to break 11 seconds. But my greatest sporting achievement was being there when Cathy Freeman won her gold medal. I think it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. So you're going to take that as a vicarious achievement? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and if the Matildas win the World Cup, I'll take that too. <laughs> I love it. I've, now I'm going to think of it differently. I know, I'm going to rewrite my list of greatest sporting <laughs> achievements off the back of that. My guests this week have been Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allam, and Director of Research at the Jumbana Institute at UTS, Professor Lyndon Coombs. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Truth-telling has been a focus on the national agenda recently. At the state level, Victoria has established a formal truth-telling process into historical injustices experienced by First Nations people. Coming up, I'll be joined by Sue Ann Hunter, one of the Uruk Justice Commissioners. Right now, though, some music from Yothi Yindi. This past week, the legendary band was inducted into the National Indigenous Music Awards Hall of Fame.
Speaking out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Sue Ann Hunter works in the space of trauma and healing practices. She's worked in Indigenous child and family welfare for more than 20 years. She's been a commissioner on the Uruk Justice Commission for the past couple of years. Uruk means truth in the Wemba Wemba language from Victoria. The commission is the first truth-telling body in Australia and focuses on injustices against First Nations people. Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, welcome to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me. What an honour to be discussing all this with you. I'm just um, I'm honoured to, to be on the show, so thank you. Well, I'm pretty excited and I thought before we got into the really great work that you're doing at the moment, I'd start by asking you where you grew up and what's shaped your worldview, particularly your focus on social justice? I don't really, I've never really spoken about where I grew up. So I'm one of six kids and during primary school we moved around a lot because Dad was a baker. Um, he's a strong Wurundjeri man. And so we moved around a lot for, for a lot of reasons, which I'll get into a bit later. But we ended up living in Broadmeadows, um, which wasn't, um, people say it's not the best suburb of Melbourne, but I learned a lot there. And um, those years of primary school of moving around and then finally settling and then being the only Aboriginal family in a school and understanding starting to understand what it really meant to be a young Aboriginal girl and understanding about starting to understand colonisation, that started to shape who I 
who I wanted to become, my world, my view of the world, that the world was unjust at a really quite early age, I think about six or seven, start to really understand that the world is unjust and, and we need, there needs to be fighters in this world and um, that not everybody's equal. I think it all started quite young for me, I think. I really understand that. I sort of feel like I got the fire in my belly quite young. It's, it's such a, um, a strong experience for First Nations people growing up, I think. Um, you've got such a big body of work before you even came to the Commission. What drew you into wanting to work in the space of well-being, um, healing families and children? So I started working at VACA, Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, and I think it was working with – because we hear about the trauma a lot and, and, you know, we all carry that with us as Aboriginal people, whatever that looks like. And I think really working one-on-one um, casework directly with young Aboriginal children and families, really I wanted to understand how – I could work better and how I could heal. And it was, it wasn't, it's not just, it wasn't just a job, um, you know, way back then. It was a, how do I make life better for others? Um, because I just remember coming into, you know, within, within my first week of, of being a caseworker, having um, disclosures of like, you know, abuse from young kids to me was like, wow, how am I going to handle this? And I thought, that's just me. I'm uncomfortable. Imagine how uncomfortable they are. So I wanted to make it um, that I could understand it. And then I started to get into a bit more into sort of the therapy side of it. And then I like to learn a lot of different sort of therapies and pull them apart and put them back together with culture as the foundation. And so I found that fascinating. And so um, it helped me do what I do with, um, I guess, uh, the kids and families. But it also helped me heal um, because I thought I can't heal others until I start healing. So the journey of learning all that helped me heal and I really reflected on my own my own journey up until then. Um, and it's just so rewarding when you see people want to take that on and start to heal. So, yeah, it was a bit, it's a bit of a journey. It's still an ongoing journey. I mean, it's... And I'm learning a lot where I am now around healing and looking at things differently in a really big leadership role. Well, yes, let's get to that because it feels like all of those things that you learned along the way have really equipped you um, for the role you've got now. Um, For people who don't know, and since it's really unique in Australia, can you tell us a bit about what the role of the Uruk Justice Commission is? Yeah, so one, it's an honour to be a commissioner on this uh, on Yuruk. So uh, Yuruk is a wamble wamble word for truth. So it's a truth and justice commission. It's the first uh, formal commission in all of Australia uh, to hold uh, the state to account around the systemic injustices from 1788 onwards. Now it is only for Victoria. Um, but it's the first state to actually have a truth-telling body. So you can liken it to, you know, South Africa or, um, you know, one of those, uh, Canada, those truth and um, justice or reconciliation commissions. We're a truth and justice commission, although ours is extremely broad. So 
the mandate is systemic injustice to to look at, um, to look at what had happened, what and how we rectify that, and make recommendations and remedy for change. So, seventeen eighty eight to current isn't no small feat. Let me tell you, when you read those letters, Peyton, I think I was very overwhelmed, and I'm still, you still grapple with it every day, the enormity of it. Just that um, I've kind of followed you as you've been doing this work because it's so groundbreaking and I'm always completely impressed by how much energy you're putting into it and how much ground you're covering both in a geographical sense and then also in a historical sense. I was just wondering from that process of having people come in and, and, you know, tell their stories to you sometimes for the first time, what impact do you see that having on the people who are coming before you with their stories? and their communities more broadly? Look, it's really, they're really hard. I, I, you know, I say this all the time. They're really hard stories to tell and they're really hard stories to hear. And as the state, we need to lean into these stories. People are brave, very brave, and I don't use that lightly. And they show their strength in coming forward and telling their stories. Um, uh, an example is of a, an auntie in one of our on-country, we were doing an on-country sort of uh, roundtable and, and yarning circle type thing. And um, she told the story of her very first child and how that child was removed, which was a pretty graphic story. Her other children were in the room and that was the first time they'd heard that story as well. And so, um, you know, when we finished, I went up to Arnie and I said, hey, are you Okay. And she said, yeah, I feel like a weight's lifted off my shoulders because I don't, I feel like I've handed it to you now because you're going to write the new narrative for the state. And I said, yeah, we are. And that, that story makes up part of that narrative. And then I rang her again the next day and I said to her, I just wanted to check in um, and make sure you're okay because it, it was such a big story to tell. And the emotion in the room, you, could, you know, you could just feel it. And I don't think there was a dry eye in the room. And... Um, she said, "Bub, I feel so much better. I have that off my chest." And she said, "I don't. You don't need to ring me again. And if I need you, I'll reach out." It was just the most amazing. Um, that's that people have never been heard. One, they've never had the opportunity to tell a story, or people that are telling their stories said, "This is the first time I've been heard." Uh, it's you know you get goosebumps every time. You just feel honoured and privileged. These stories are sacred stories. And some people say, you know, we know these stories, so I don't need to tell you mine. I'm like, yours is unique. Yours is individual. What's happened to you, that incident may have happened to others, but how you process it and how you went through it is unique to you. So keeping people in a really, you know, um, held through these stories is really uh, how we get, how we're sort of getting the work done, I guess. But um, I'm just amazed at people's strength, their, the way they their dignity, I think dignity is a really big word, the way they hold themselves when all these atrocities have happened to them and also telling stories about their families and ancestors. So true. And one of the things I love about that anecdote that you shared with us is it, it must encapsulate um, what's so rewarding about the role but also what the challenge is, that weight that's now on you to be reframing uh, this history mm. of the state, as Auntie told you. So can you share with us what you're finding as the real highs and then some of the challenges of the role? So the real highs are 
getting out on country. I, how honoured am I that I get to travel around the country and talk to mob? What a job, right? <laughs> it's just, it's <laughs> just, you know, you could be having the worst week because just everything's, you know, sort of upon you, and then you get out on country and it's with mob, and you know, you you're not really a commissioner. You're there to hear their stories, and you're just part of the community. I love that's that gives us strength to keep going because every time we're out there, we draw on those those, you know, everything, everything about culture of being on country. Um, and I get to learn about all the different mobs around the state and hear their stories and we go to sacred sites and we don't just hear stories of sadness and doom. We hear stories of, you know, power, strength um, and, and reawakening culture. So they're amazing. I think the other part where, I, look, I have to say I feel most powerful is when we hold hearings and we're holding the state to account um, I feel the strength of mob because we've never, as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we've never had state on the stand with uh, Aboriginal people holding them to account and asking them those difficult questions where they have to answer them. Also asking for those documents to be delivered, which have had a bit of argy-bargy uh, that, that we need to see. Um, a good example of that is, you know, the state knew in Victoria, that the um, the bail reform laws would adversely affect Aboriginal people, and it did adversely. It also, in that time, there's been deaths in custody, and the amount of people that are held for the amount of time um, on remand in jail for particularly Aboriginal women is is absolutely ridiculous. So we've been able to see documents where they knew these things would affect us but they did it anyway, and then hold them to account. So they are amazing moments for us as Aboriginal people. Um, and, and I say all of us because we don't do this alone. We couldn't do this without mob. I feel like I don't feel like a commissioner. I feel like a facilitator of voice, um, and, and that's what you know we want to do. That the hard stuff is is you know it's very legal. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a social worker and so I feel like a bush lawyer at the moment. I'm, I'm starting to learn a lot. Um, they're the difficult times of how do you – because it's – how do I put it? It's – we're under a royal commission, like – and we're talking about black followers of knowing, being and doing and they clash every single day and we have to navigate that to get justice for our people. That's the difficult – thing. The other difficult thing is it's another Royal Commission, right? No one trusts them. And then we explain to people the difference with this Royal Commission is that we have the First People's Assembly who also get a recommendation. So MOP's still accountable in that respect of pushing these recommendations through as we go. So we have a report coming out on the 30th of August uh, that is, uh, is the two streams we just did, which is child protection and criminal justice. So that's exciting. So that should be released the first week in uh, September. I'll have to have you back on to talk about that. I just want to dig into something that you said there because it is very true that the work that you're doing in Victoria sits in with the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which is also a groundbreaking institution compared to what's happening in other states. And, you know, there is a treaty process that's that's um, taking place there as well. How do you see this really important work that you're doing of truth-telling fitting in with those uh, those other streams, those those other agendas? 
So I've had to sort of navigate that a lot with people. And so the way I sort of put it is we're like the researchers and we're gathering the evidence so that they can uh, negotiate these issues that we've been putting up with for a long time and these injustices with the government and we've got enough evidence to back it up to say, hey, we already know, but what you're doing is not working and this is what our people want. I think it's pretty simple. So our recommendations, what is happening with them is we'll have recommendations for now that things need to be addressed now. They can't wait for a treaty because we don't know how long that's going to take. And then we have the long-term recommendations around the possibility of what this could look like or, or what the treaty could negotiate into a treaty for us as First Peoples of Victoria. It's no small thing. And, you know, obviously we've we've mentioned a couple of things that are, you know, the, the first in the country that are happening mm. in Victoria. What do you hope this might mean for other jurisdictions and particularly in the space that you're working? If other jurisdictions are looking to go down this path of effectively a, a, a truth-telling commission, what is the advice that you would give them? The advice I'd give them is that make sure you've got the powers to compel and make sure it's not just an inquiry without any powers because, you know, as we've seen, the state will hold off on stuff uh, or not deliver. It's a pretty big thing. We're coming into land justice, so I would say this is going to be a really testing time uh, because we've already seen in criminal justice and child protection the trying not to, you know, to use everything not to give us certain documents. So I think land justice is going to be more prominent in that. You just need this broad... I'm, we're lucky we've got five commissioners with a broad skill set. So uh, one of our commissioners isn't um, Aboriginal. He's a he's a former Supreme Court judge and he's great in understanding uh, laws, royal commissions, you know, those sorts of things we can go and just have this debate about and pick his brain. I'm sort of in the wellbeing space, the the telling, the, the social work type space where uh, we've got Maggie uh, Walter, who's uh, Palawa, who's a, um, a, a researcher, just an academic really. I, I don't even know what to say. She's an amazing woman and will be a lifelong friend after going through this. And then uh, our chair is... Um, Annie Eleanor Burke and her background's education, but she's also worked a lot in government. So we can navigate those sort of, um, she has a lot of rich history, which is great for us to understand history. And then we've just got a, a, a not so new, he's been there six months, where um, Travis Lovett is the other commissioner and he's worked in government, but he's also worked on land and waters. So we've got this dynamic where we can all call on each other for different, I guess, abilities that, that we're sort of uh, really understand. And you need a group of people that, that get along and that can really work together. I would say think about what your outcome is as you're setting it up and your outcome is solely self-determination for our people, I would believe. And so that is at the forefront of our mind every day. How do we get self-determination? Justice is, is the middle, is the, I think justice is sort of the easy piece in a truth-telling commission. I think the hard part is going to be getting self-determination. So there's a lot of goodwill and I would say call on the goodwill of other people that want to come forward and assist and the use the allies and, um, but also listen to mob how they want it ran because this could turn into a, a very, you know, sanitised version if you let it, um, but how you listen to mob and how you hold mob and how you don't re-traumatise mob is really, really an important part of the work. 
It's very easy to see how, given your um, reflections on the impact that the work's having, that the Commission will have a profound legacy on people who've mm. engaged with it and, and the whole process of, of truth-telling. Yeah. I just wonder from your perspective, I mean, you came into this role... Uh, with a very strong history working in the community in very difficult areas. How has the work changed you? What impact has it had on you personally? I think I think the good thing for me is that I've had, I've started at casework. I started, you know, on the ground with mob and then worked my way through. I think that one of the things is I understand those difficulties on the ground right through uh, to, but what has changed me is that I haven't seen this top layer before. I don't think anybody has in, you know, because there's been no other uh, truth-telling commission and that how we interact with government and to actually see and understand how these policies affect our mob on the ground and that there's no how they're translated down the line is really, I guess, um, it's a bit disheartening. And so what it's changed is in me is to really really rigorously go through these policies, these laws that affect our people adversely and understand them enough to hold the state to account. Um, And I never thought I'd have the opportunity to even be here, let alone say that. Um, But it's, you know what, it's changed me and I have more drive, I have more determination and it's reinvigorated me that there's so much work to be done because we only see our pockets but when you see a whole state and you, and you see the pocket that you've been working in, it's actually so much worse at another, you know, another community that doesn't have the resources that we have sort of around Melbourne. And as you further you go out, they're mob that need us. They're the mob that need change more than we do because they don't have anything. So it's given me this bird's eye view. It's reinvigorated me. It's, um, you know, I just want to see change for our kids that's what I want to see change for. You know, I want to, I want to be part of making our way towards self-determination. And you know what? I don't, I'm not, I think the only legacy is what I want to leave is that my daughter and the future, you know, her, my grandchildren, whenever that is going to happen and down the road, I, I want them just to be, say, you know, that's that's my line that stood up for us in that Royal Commission. If it makes a bigger impact on our mob and it gives them drive and determination, then I'm really happy for that. But I've never really been in it for a legacy piece. I think I just want change for mob. Commissioner Sue Ann Hunter, thank you so much for all the really important impactful work that you're doing and for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when I'll be joined by Cape York Aboriginal leader Noel Pearson. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.